Well, we've got a lot to cover this morning. And as we prepare our hearts, I would like to pray for us. Uh, I would like to pray for Corey as well. As you can tell, he's a little sick. So I want to pray for him. He's singing and he's losing his voice. So let's pray to God for our time together. Lord Jesus, I don't want to take for granted the fact that we are here before your presence again as your people. Lord, the only reason we're here is because your son, Jesus Christ, died on a cross for our sins. It was a perfect sacrifice for us. And Lord, we know and understand truly that you are not still dead. You are alive. Lord, I pray that that would resonate in our hearts. Lord, that today there would be great joy and rejoicing and satisfaction again in what you've done and accomplished for us so long ago. Lord, we want to admit also that sometimes our hearts do not even think about it throughout our day. Lord, forgive us. Lord, I pray that your spirit would strengthen us to not only remember, but to remain fixed on that every day. Lord, I do pray for those who are sick. I know that there are families still who are struggling with children who are sick. They're sick. Lord, I pray that your hand would grant them rest. Their bodies would recover. Lord, that they would be able to join back together with your people. Lord, there's many other things in our hearts. I pray that as this service continues, Lord, that we would still be remaining our thoughts with you. Even when these things come into our minds, Lord, may we settle them at your throne and leave them there. Lord, we love you. Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Philippians. Some of you are going, why are we turning to Philippians? (laughs) Funny you should ask. You see, there were um, things that we did prior to Christmas where we studied, we've been going through Philippians. So if you haven't been to our church in about three months, you have no idea that we were in Philippians. But we were. We were in Philippians. We actually covered the first two chapters, if you remember. And uh, maybe you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. We, did, we were in Philippians. And so really what I want to do, since we haven't been there in a, literally about three months, we had a Christmas series Then we changed our name, so we had a January Changing Your Name series, and then we just finished Biblical Sexuality. So now we're back. We're back in Philippians. So I want to review Philippians. So turn to Philippians. Uh, Our passage today is in Philippians chapter 3, but I kind of want to rehearse 1 and 2, just so that we can understand again some of the main things that are happening here. And if you notice, one of the things that we have said about Philippians is that it's about real, the real gospel brings real joy. And we're looking at Paul's life, and as he's writing to the believers in Philippi, he is specifically saying things about them that should give them joy, that would cause them to rejoice. One of the things he starts off by saying is that I'm so thankful to God for the times that I remember you. You are partners in the gospel with me. And he's not only confident that they're partners, but he's also confident that God who began the work in them and brought them to the gospel will actually complete it. And then he prays for them that their minds would be fixed on what is excellent. He moves in and talks about that he's imprisoned because of the gospel. This is the gospel, I've been proclaiming it, but now I'm in prison for it. And that actually caused other people to have confidence and to be bold in speaking for God. He says, but some do it 
out of right reasons, and others do it to actually harm Paul. People are doing it against Paul while he's in prison, trying to afflict him there. And he says, listen, either way, Christ is being proclaimed, and therefore I rejoice. And he says that he might even die for the sake of this gospel. And he says this very famous line where he says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But he's convinced, though, that he will remain with the Philippians for their progress and joy in the faith. And he charges them and reminds them, he says, listen, stay united in the gospel. There are people who are going to persecute you, just like they're persecuting me. Stay united for the gospel, in the gospel. Don't be afraid by those people. And understand this, as he ends chapter 1, he says, God has appointed for you not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. And then in chapter 2, he starts and he says, listen, if there's anything that you can be united over, think of Christ. Think of all the things that Christ has done for you. All you need is Jesus. He's the reason that you can stay humble in your thoughts of yourself. He says, remember what he's done for you. Let this mind be in you, which is yours in Christ. He says, remember, Jesus was in the very nature God. He's, He's God. And he humbled himself and became humbled to the point of a servant and then even humbled more by becoming a servant unto death and then even worse, death on a cross. He says there's no, there's no end to his humble love for you. And in fact, through that, God then highly exalted him above every name that could be named. And so every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And in light of that, he tells them later on in chapter 2, he says, therefore, listen, you are going to walk by the powerful reality that God is with you. He's there not just to help you do it, but actually to want to do it, both to will and to work. You're fully dependent on him. And then he reminds them later on in verse 14, he says, don't complain. Don't complain then when following Jesus doesn't meet your expectations. Remain joyful. Remain joyful. Hold fast to Jesus. And he says, even if I die, even if I die for the sake of your faith, he says, I'm going to rejoice because I'm going to be with God. Therefore, you should rejoice with me also. Rejoice with me over these things. And then he says, listen, guys, there's two, there's two individuals that I want to draw your attention to. These two live the way that I'm talking about. Their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, there's no one like this guy. He genuinely cares for you. He's not selfish at all. What matters to Christ is what matters to him. And Epaphroditus, let me tell you, you sent him to me to care for me. In his service, he almost died. He was so sick, I almost thought that he was going to die, but God spared me that grief. And let me tell you, this guy never lost focus of the chance to joyfully serve his Savior in his service to me. That's how he begins the first two chapters. And then if you notice, constantly Paul seems to be overflowing with joy. But if you notice it immediately, there's nothing really in his circumstances that you could point to and say, oh, that's the reason why he's rejoicing. There it is. It's because he's in prison. No, that's not it. Uh, He's rejoicing because there's people attacking him. No, that's not it either. On and on, there's things that you would say, okay, he can't rejoice in that. Yet he stubbornly refuses to listen to you, and he wants to overflow with joy. And he does. And it's interesting, in Philippians 3, God, and I have to remind myself of this. I really was challenged by this as Todd and I were talking, is that God is writing this letter through Paul to us. So when we hear Paul writing these things, remember this is God telling us these things, what he wants us to do. 
And God reminds us that we are to live a life focused on the grace and love of God that is shown to us in the gospel. That's where we live. That's where we live. That never changes. The gospel is always the reason for our rejoicing. If you were here in January, you know that we said that we want to, we exist as a church to glorify God by making disciples who exalt in Jesus Christ. That's what we want. We want people who glory in Christ. We want people who are focused on Christ. But let's be honest, often, I would say even this past week for me as well, this past month perhaps, we often get distracted. Perhaps we get discouraged in the realities of life. And you say, yeah, that's, that's really nice that you want me to rejoice in the Lord and have real joy. But that's not really happening. Look at my life. Look at what is going on. And when those times come, and I have to be challenged in this myself, when those times come, I need to focus again on what God has done for me, not what I am asked to do for him. Because what matters to God is a heart that rejoices in him. What matters to God is a heart that rejoices in him. And we're going to see that in Philippians chapter 3. So read with me verses 1 through 3. He writes, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now notice he starts, finally, my brothers. You usually think when someone says finally that they're going to be quickly done. If you notice, he's in the middle of the book. So when he says finally, you're like, oh, this is one of those long pastor conclusions that goes on for two more chapters. Fantastic. What he actually is saying is finally is a tough translation. What he says is, as for the rest of the things that I need to say to you. So he's covered some things, and now he says, now for the rest of the things. So there's a shift in the book, specifically to some of the things that he's going to address. And I would say that all of them are centered on this phrase, rejoice in the Lord. Because notice he says, and this is a command, rejoice in the Lord. Now, throughout the book, he said that he's rejoiced. I'm rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. This is the first time that he ties it to the Lord. Rejoice in specifically the Lord. Now rejoicing, being glad in, enjoying, being satisfied in is clearly fully dependent on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for him. As we said, there's no circumstances that would point to reasons for his joy, yet he rejoices. And I would argue for us, so many times we think that our circumstances dictate whether or not we can have joy. Think of it like this. If I asked you, what has God done for you lately? Just what happened this past week? What has God done for you? You could say, well, God woke me up this morning. I was praying for something and he finally answered it. My kids were sick and finally they're feeling better. But I'm sick now. Maybe he gave you clarity on direction in your future. or something what you were anticipating and, and looking forward to or maybe even anxious over and God gave you clarity. He said, Thank you, Lord. Maybe some of you would say, you know, it's been really hard. It's been really hard. But I, I know, I know the Lord is with me today. His mercies are new every morning. And I think all of those are great reasons to rejoice in God. We would all say, praise the Lord. We should all say that. But the question is, what, it, what if none of those things happen? What if the exact opposite happened? What if you still have no clarity 
of the future? What if God is still not answering any prayers that you've been praying? What if you're still sick? What happens if you lost a loved one this week? Are those circumstances dictating anything of God's reason, or your reason rather, to rejoice in the Lord? Many times they do. Many times they do. And I'm not trying to be flippant about this and be like, hey, listen, in the midst of it, just keep rejoicing in the Lord. But there is something that Paul is pointing to that is absolutely the greatest reason to rejoice in the Lord. Because again, this never changes. Everything else in life, circumstances, none of it is circumstantially guaranteed for you to work out well. This is the one thing that the Bible says to hope in, to hope fully on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ because it's firm, it is fixed. What Jesus has done is settled. It is settled. And think of the fact that he has brought sinners back to himself. People who are absolutely undeserving of this grace and this mercy have been actually brought back to him in glorious reconciliation with the Father through the Son. And let me say that this command, rejoice in the Lord, is for all of us. This is plural. Think of it, when we gather together, this should be a time where we are focused on rejoicing in the Lord together. So that when we leave and we go to some of our individual things that we do, that we're still rejoicing in the Lord. That we don't forget that the call is for all of us. When you interact with one another, that you're encouraging one another to rejoice in the Lord, but you're weeping with those who weep. You're mourning with those who mourn. Yet your focus and your desire for them is to look forward and to look upward to Jesus Christ. I think of what Paul wrote in Philippians 2. We kind of passed over it quickly. But he writes to them and says, listen, if there's any encouragement in Christ, the expectation is there is. There's any comfort from love, there is. If there's any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, yes, there are, constantly. Then be of the same mind, have the same love, be of the same Spirit and the same purpose. Because remember, what matters to God is a heart that rejoices in Him. And what matters to God is also a community of believers who encourage one another to rejoice in Him. And so that's why the summary of Philippians is real gospel, real joy. The real gospel, the truth of the gospel brings real joy. But the question I have to ask myself, and I give it to you as well, is do I actually rejoice in the Lord? When could I say the last time was that I actually rejoiced in the Lord? Maybe some of you are saying that's foreign to me. That's very not a reality in my life. Maybe you would say we're often distracted or I'm often distracted. But here's the great thing is that Paul knows, God knows that we need reminders. And so after he says rejoice in the Lord, then he kind of starts this reality of his encouragement and why he can encourage them. But also warns them of distractions from this focus. Notice he says in the last part of verse 1, he says to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. No trouble to me. I love that. Hey, for me to repeat this again is no problem. It's not a burden. It doesn't bother me. I think of the heart of a father. I'm the exact opposite of that. It bothers me that I have to remind you again of this same thing. Remember, every night you get changed in your pajamas. Every night, I tell you, to brush your teeth. Every night, you're supposed to wash your hands and go to the potty. Oh, you're in bed and now you have to go potty. Isn't that convenient? That's great. Okay, thanks. 
It's trouble to me. But Paul's focus is on the glorious things. And he says, listen, if I have to tell you about Jesus Christ again, that's not going to be a problem for me. I'm not going to get old in telling you about that. I think even of my heart as a father of sitting down with my kids and trying to talk to them about Jesus and their reactions. I shouldn't look at that and say, oh, they're not listening. I should say, it is no problem for me to sit here with you. Even whatever that is is happening over there, I still want to tell you about Jesus Christ. It's no problem for me. And then he writes, he says, it's safe for you. This is a safeguard. This is a protection for you. I think of how many times I received warnings from my dad. Typically, it was driving advice. Driving advice. Now, remember, Charles, go ahead and drive and keep your eyes open. Defensive driving, that's the key thing. And he keeps telling, I know, I know, Dad. I know. How many times do you hear that from your kids? I know, I know, I know. You know what's amazing? The repetition itself. What do you think they're thinking about when they're actually doing this? The very thing that you've been saying over and over and over again. It just is in there. And Paul knows that. He says, I'm just going to keep reminding you of these things. I'm just going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep telling you. Because in those moments when you don't know, guess what's going to come into your mind? The very thing that I kept telling you about over and over and over again. It's safe for you. It's not a burden to me. That's what you need to think about. And he reminds us the importance of what he's talking about demands repeating because our hearts are so quickly distracted the repetition of life, you're doing Christian things, you, you look right, you, you look religious. But the question I have to ask, and Paul asks you, is what's the point of you doing this? What's the point? What's your focus when you're doing this? You see, some of the most dangerous things that we could face are those things that are in terms of religious practices. This is considered good, godly living. This is the thing that pleases the Lord. But let me remind you, What matters to God is not simply the action. It's not simply the action that matters to God. What matters to God is a heart that rejoices in him. But Paul's going to show us that there's things that man cares about. And what matters to man is earning God's rejoicing in us. What matters to God is a heart that rejoices in him. What matters to man is mankind trying to earn God's rejoicing in us. But that's not the real gospel. And therefore, that doesn't lead to real joy. And so often we are deceived. Notice verse 2. He gives us three things to look out for. This is imperative and it's building intensity. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Let me tell you, this is the same group of people. There's not three different groups that he's looking for. Okay, there's the dogs. Okay, there's the evildoers. Where are the mutilators of the flesh? Where are they? They're all the same group. You can't know this because the Greek translation is lost. The, the, the power of it is lost because all of these words start with the same letter. They all start with the same letter. So it would be something like this. Look out for the dogs, the detestable, the destroyers. He's building intensity as he's talking about it. All the same group of people. It's a threefold emphasis, and the group that he's talking about is known as, or who we label as, the Judaizers. These are people who are saying that Gentiles must be circumcised in order to be a full member of the people of God. You must do something in order to be actually fully accepted by God. Now, why would that be tempting to Gentiles? Well, there's two main things that are happening in Philippi. There's religious 
and social pressure. Religious and social pressure. The social pressure is the idea of they're being persecuted. They're in Rome. Rome promotes emperor worship. Emperor worship that's mandated by their, by their uh, citizens, by the people who are there. If you don't do that, there's judgment against you. Judgment against you. Jews were recognized as a legitimate religion and they could practice non-emperor worship in safety without persecution. Christians though, who are they? You're not Jew. You're not Roman. What are you? We're persecuting you. And so the temptation would be, I don't want to be labeled this nebulous reality. I want to join in with the Jews because there's safety there. There's protection there. There's no persecution there. That's one of the dangers and the pressures. The other one is religious pressures. Again, they're going around telling you that this is what you must do in order to be accepted by God. This gains you favor with God, in a sense, by doing this. And think of it. For thousands of years, this is the way it was. Thousands of years. The sign of you being part of the covenant community was circumcision for the males. That's what it was. If you were circumcised, you were part of God's people. And so the pressure is you you do want to do what's pleasing to God. You do understand we have a great track record back here. Like This is exactly what we've done. This is normal. Why would you not do this? Why would you change this and do something else? Any Gentile who, who wanted to become part of this community, they were circumcised. And I think of the reality for us. How does this look for us? For us, perhaps we don't have yet full persecution for some of the things that we say, but we have social pressures, do we not? We have pressures from the community to say certain things in a certain way about certain groups of people. We just covered a series on biblical sexuality. Could you imagine if they had newscasters all the way up here and they were filming everything and they were playing it live? How do you think Jasper would have responded in that way? How do you think Todd would have responded in that way? Or Bjorn when they were up there? Or how about the forum? Do you think the comments would have been maybe a little more nerve-wracking for them? It was nervous enough getting all of them. But imagine if there's all of these people who don't believe, who are waiting for you to slip up. What are you going to say? Pressure. I think of other realities like that. Pressure not to talk about things that we need to talk about because God talks about them. But again, think of in our situation, there's a worse deception. There's religious pressures on us. And I would say this is our normal temptation. It doesn't, and it doesn't come across the same way, perhaps, as this was. But we're tempted to put more emphasis on outward action, thinking that our standing with God changes if we do one thing instead of another. Let me give you some examples. How about we eat certain foods or we have certain diets because we understand that some of the things that are happening perhaps in the food industry is unethical and therefore we shun certain things. How about we avoid shopping at certain stores because they support unbiblical agendas? What about we cancel Netflix for similar reasons or maybe Disney Plus because of their support of unbiblical agendas? How about I'm part of demonstrations that stand against injustice in our community and in our nation? Or how about I serve in so many ways, not just in church, but I also serve all throughout the community? And not to mention our thoughts on various issues in politics, vaccination, schooling your children, how you spend vacation, care for the poor, on and on and on we could go. 
The problem is, is that we have a danger thinking all Christians need to be exactly the same on this. We all need to think exactly the, the same on this. For you to believe something different, I don't think you understand what God would have you to do. I don't think you understand the importance of how needed this is. Do you, you miss this? And we start judging these things against one another. But let me ask you this. Does, does your practice in one over another change the way that God thinks of you? Does God love you more if you eat a kale salad over a quarter pounder with cheese? Does he? Does God love you more if you shop at Hobby Lobby over Target? Does God love you more if you read a Christian book at nighttime or watch Netflix? Does God love you more if you're Republican over Democrat? Does God love you more if you have a better paying job over someone who struggles to make ends meet? Does God love you more if you decide to put your kids in Christian school or homeschool over someone who sends their kids to public school? Does God receive you to himself in any way on the basis of your efforts? Does God receive you more on anything that you do in his sight? Let's get even crazier. That was just starters. Let's go ahead and get crazy. What about reading your Bible, praying? You study the Bible. You attended church. You invited others to church. You even signed up for online giving so that you never forget to bring a check or cash and miss your tithe. What about you listen to Christian music? You disciple your children. How about you serve in the church? You're part of a small group. Again, on and on and on I could go. Does God love you more because you do these things? Does he love you more? What about if the opposite happened? Does God love you less? There's the deception that we're dealing with. My doing these things, we believe, makes God happier with me. Can I tell you that's missing the gospel? That is missing the gospel. Your joy is not based on the goodness of your efforts throughout a week or a day or a month. Because if we truly understood the wickedness in our hearts, we would be appalled at what that looks like to God. This quote by Tim Keller has stuck with me. I've shared it before. Jasper shared it this past Thursday. I'm sharing it with you. This is what he says. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Friends, that's the real gospel. That's what leads you to real joy. That's why you and I can always rejoice in the Lord. Because God knows that at the same time we, we don't deserve any of his grace. Look at how sinful and flawed we are. And we're even worse than we ever dared believe. Worse. And yet that's the reality of the grace of God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And Paul's point, Paul's point is, listen to me, the ground of your confidence is Christ rather than any human social privilege or any religious activity. It is solely Jesus Christ. But the reality is, is that you and I are so quickly distracted and deceived, but this isn't normal, or this isn't, sorry, abnormal, this is normal, that we're distracted. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. He says, I betrothed you to one husband. I wanted to present you as a pure virgin to Christ, but I'm afraid. 
I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts also will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Who's he talking about here? He's talking about false apostles. In fact, right after this passage of scripture, he says, listen, these guys are proclaiming to you another Jesus. You're receiving a different spirit. You're accepting a different gospel. Isn't it amazing? Satan also, just after this passage, is called the angel of light who masquerades as an angel of light. Again, it looks Christian. It looks good. He can't get you if it's blatantly evil. He gets you because it looks good. And he's masquerading. He's disguising himself as an angel of light. Paul writes prior to this passage and he tells them, he goes, listen, the reason why these guys are so dangerous is because they measure themselves by one another. They compare themselves with one another. How are they doing? Ooh, I'm doing better. Ooh, look at that. They failed there. Ooh, yeah, good. I'm still doing well. They measure themselves with one another. And then he says this, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's not the one who commends himself who is approved. You can't commend yourself and show how awesome you are to be approved by God. He says, it is the one whom the Lord commends who is approved. The Lord has to commend you to himself. The Lord draws you to himself. You're not doing anything where God goes, oh yeah, oh, you deserve grace. That's absolutely contrary to the very essence of grace. You don't deserve grace. And God in his grace calls you to himself. And so ask yourself these two questions. What is it that I believe makes me a better Christian? What is it? that you believe makes you a better Christian. And this is in terms of thoughts towards other people. Because I can compare myself with other people and believe that I am actually a better Christian. And then the second question is your thoughts towards God. What is it that I am tempted to believe that in doing it makes God happier with me? What is it that I'm tempted to believe that doing it makes God happier with me? Because those are your thoughts towards God. Is there anything that comes to mind? Because those are the things that you and I need to repent of and go back to, again, the simplicity of the gospel preached. And this might be a reason why you're not rejoicing in the Lord. Because you're not even focused on the Lord. You're focused on your efforts and your actions. You're too busy trying to rejoice in yourself. That's the danger. Because you rejoice in something. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. So often I think I'm, I'm walking around saying, God, God, no, no, I'm really, I'm really, I'm good, I'm good. Look at how good I am. I'm not that bad. And God's looking at me saying, Charles, look at how good I am. Look at how good I am. Not you. I'm not impressed by that. Look at how amazing this is, that I'm, I'm your father. I've called you to myself. You're my son. What, what are you going to add to that? That you're going to say, look at, look at this. Look at this. I try to work myself outside of grace. Church, can we just admit that we're not trying to impress God that we don't need his grace? Can we just admit that's impossible? God, God I'm not that bad of a sinner. Look, I don't need as much of your grace as, as the other person around. Look it, look it. He goes, no, marvel in my grace. Receive my grace. It's the glorious grace of God that is the boasting all of our life. That's what we're called to rejoice in. And the very thing we're called to rejoice in is the thing that we're trying to somehow get out from under to show God how good we are. No. It's exactly the opposite of what he's saying. This Be reminded of grace. Be reminded of grace. And so Paul writes 
And God in his grace reminds us of what he has done for us. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Immediately he hits the identity of who you are. He goes, let me remind you, because you're going to start thinking that you need to do these things. And specifically, he writes exactly the very thing that these people were promoting, circumcision. He goes, they're telling you to get circumcised. Guess what? You are the circumcision. The very thing that they're telling you to get to be accepted by me is the very thing that I've made you. You already have it. What is that going to benefit you? Nothing. You are that. That's a powerful statement that he calls them the circumcision. He's writing to a Gentile church as a Jew, probably the only one that he's writing to. Maybe there are some Jews in that church. I'm not trying to say there aren't, but the majority of them are Gentiles. So here's a guy who is circumcised writing to those who are not saying, you are circumcision. You are it. You are the circumcision. Everything that was expected of that act is in you. It's you. It's finished. You don't have to do that anymore because you are that. And I love that. Everything that circumcision pointed to is fulfilled in Jesus Christ calling you to himself. And this is hinted at in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. This is one of many passages. But he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul That you may live. Again, what is God desiring? God is desiring a heart that rejoices in Him, that you would love Him with all your heart and all your soul. Notice there's nothing up there that you're doing first. It says that God would actually, I am going to circumcise your heart. I'm going to take out from you that old heart that is unfeeling towards me, and I'm going to replace it. And I'm going to make you then walk in my way. I'm going to do this for you. And so even Paul writes in Romans 2, in the New Testament, reflecting on this, he says, listen, there's for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But you could argue, no, no, it is. It is. And he goes, I know, but this is the one that actually matters. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not By the letter. So therefore the person who is that, his praise is not from man, but from God. You have no reason to boast. You have no reason to praise or seek the praise of man because his praise is already given to him by God. That's the one that matters, the matter of the heart. And that's what he says is a true Jew. So let me make this crazy. If you are in Christ, you are a spiritual Jew. You have the full benefits of the Jew because you are united to Jesus, who is the true Jew. He's the one who's accomplished everything that the Jews needed to accomplish. This is the circumcision that God cared about from the beginning. This only happens because it is given of a grace gift by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says you have. Galatians 6. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. What counts is the new creation. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. That matters to God. Far more 
than any religious action that you would take. Do you rejoice in God? Yes, because that's part of the new creation. This is all done by God. It's a change of the heart. And he starts there. You are the circumcision. Now look at what he gives as evidence of that circumcision. The evidence of new creation. It's... Oh, um, I think I lost a list of good actions that are after the new... Oh, wait, no, it's not, because it's not there. Oh, it's not there. That's right. Oh, look at that. All of the things that he says focus us on rejoicing in the Lord. Notice he says, this is what you do. You worship by the Spirit of God. You glory in Christ Jesus. And you put no confidence in the flesh. If I could say that summarizes what you are called to as a Christian, there it is. There it is. You worship by the Spirit of God. You boast or glory in Christ Jesus and you put no confidence in your flesh and what your ability is to do anything. Notice he says you worship by the Spirit of God. That word is so powerful. It's the idea of temple ritual actions in the Old Testament. These are what the priests would do. Right? Think of how many sacrifices and the various things that they did. He goes, you do that now by the Spirit of God. You do this. You worship and serve God simply by the Spirit of God. And what's the motivation for you doing this? It's glorying in Christ Jesus. You're boasting in him. You're finding your delight in him. That's what I'm calling you to do. The Spirit of God is drawing you to boast in Jesus Christ. And so everything that you do is you seeing Jesus and saying, yes, that's my reason why I'm working. That's my reason why I'm doing anything. It's not because I'm doing it because I want to look better. It's because God has made me his own. Therefore, I'm doing the very thing that he's asked me to do out of love and by the power of the Spirit of God. And that's why you and I have no reason to have confidence in the flesh. No confidence, no assurance of good standing, no confidence in your actions. Can I remind you again the warning? You and I can go to church in the flesh. You and I can read our Bibles in the flesh. We can pray in the flesh. We can serve in the flesh. That's what he's telling us. We can do all of those things. And the the reason why it's in the flesh is because the furthest thing from your mind during that time is the grace and love of God in Christ Jesus. That's the furthest thing from your mind. That's doing those very things in the flesh. Let me ask you this. Why did you come today? Why did you come today? Perhaps you feel like you have to. Perhaps you feel like it's a pressure of your small group. Maybe it's a pressure of your family. Maybe your wife got you here. Who knows? This is what God is asking of you is that you would come here and understand that what I'm asking you to do is to glory in my goodness, my grace, and my love for you all the time. It's what I want from you. I look at that and I think of a a child with a parent. I think of my own kids. Imagine if my kids, every single time I was around them, they were showing me how they were doing everything right and obediently. I walk in the room and they go, oh, daddy, 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 look at my room. Look at my room. Look at I cleaned it. I cleaned it. I cleaned it. First of all, I would have probably fallen down dead. But let's say it actually happened. 
They said, Daddy, look at my room. Look at my room. And I'm like, wow, that's great. Yeah, hey, can I talk? Hey, Daddy, 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 look at this. Look at my homework. I got A's on my homework. Look, look at all the good things I did. Yeah, yeah. Hey, awesome. Great, great. Can, do you want to come over here and sit down and talk? Or can, can we be together? They, oh, Daddy, 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 look at, look at, look at. I, I helped made some, some dinner too. And they're showing me all the things that they do. All the things that they do. Great, fantastic, wonderful. They have no desire to actually be with me. They're just too busy showing me all the things that they did. I don't have a relationship with that child. Imagine another child, who probably isn't a far-fetched idea, who doesn't, doesn't obey you. Just imagine that kid. <laughs> so this kid, every single time, you come and you say, hey, listen, listen, this is, this is what's happening. Like, Daddy, I know, I know, I didn't do it very well. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Daddy. And then they come and they give you a hug. And they say, Daddy, will you please forgive me? Yeah, of course. And everywhere you go, for some reason, they're right next to you. They're just right next to you. They're always mindful of you. They're just enjoying being with you. I will take all of the mistakes of that child knowing that they are mine rather than the kid that's over there busy trying to do all the things for me and doesn't even enjoy me. Doesn't know anything about me. Can I remind you the Bible gives that picture? We know the story of the prodigal son. The story is the focus of the older brother. The older brother is the one who's with the father all the time. He's constantly doing everything that his father asked him. Constantly doing it. He's looking at it and saying, Dad, Dad, look, look at this, look at this, look at this. Finally, this prodigal son goes away, comes back, and the father rejoices over the fact that he's brought back. He understands my goodness and my love. That's the motivation for him to come back. Maybe my father will forgive me. Of course he's going to forgive him. He comes over, he forgives him, he, he, he gives him all of these great riches and the older son's over there going, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? Don't you have any idea who this guy is? And the father looks at the son, he goes, listen, everything that I have is yours. Why would I not rejoice over this guy over here? You realize that he missed the heart of the father the entire time he's with him? He doesn't know the heart of his father that he would rejoice over a sinner who would repent. He doesn't even know that about his own father. And he's mad at his father for not treating him in a way that he deems righteously. You're gracious too. He's not gracious. He doesn't look anything like his father because he doesn't know the father. Yet he's doing everything right. Can I tell you, he does not rejoice in his father? He doesn't. This one does. This one does because he understands grace. He understands mercy. And let me say to you that your father is telling you everything I have is yours. Don't be distracted by doing things right for me. Rejoice in me. Let me ask this. I think of this. What did God think of you last week? What did God think of you last week? I I read my Bible, you say. Maybe I went to small group. I prayed. I studied my Bible. I listened to the sermon again. It was so good. I went to church. I actually signed up for online giving, as I said before. I responded to my family patiently most of the time. Most of the time. I even invited my coworker and my friend to come to church. I had a really good week. God's really happy with me. What if you said the exact opposite? What if you said the only time I touched my Bible was to move it so I could put my drink on the coffee table? What if you said the only time I prayed was when I said, oh God, why is this happening right now? I didn't go to small group. I didn't go to church. I tried to, but my kids were sick. 
I responded very impatiently, constantly to my family. I ignored my coworkers and my friends. Didn't even want to talk to them. What do you think God thinks of both of you? You realize that the conclusion of both of you is exactly the same? The conclusion of both of you should be, I desperately need Jesus Christ. I desperately need you, Jesus. The danger of one is to be satisfied in actions. The danger of the other is to not believe the heart of the Father could receive him because he wasn't good. Both of them desperately need Jesus Christ. And the work of God, Jesus says, is to believe in the one he has sent. So rely on the Spirit to give you strength to worship God. See again the glory that is in Christ Jesus and recognize that your flesh is constantly warring against you to find confidence in it. Fight it. And so let me ask these questions in closing. What hinders you from rejoicing in the Lord? What is it that you need to confess that you depend on instead of Christ? Or in addition to Christ, where are you confident in your flesh? Let me say, maybe some of you are saying, listen, I I walk away most Sundays and I have no joy in Jesus. We would love to talk to you. Perhaps you don't know the gospel and perhaps you don't understand the gospel. And as a reminder in closing, I want to quote a song to you. It's a dear song to me. I love it. And heard it for many years. It's the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. This is what it says. It says, How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father, he had to turn his face away from his son. And the wounds which marred that chosen one, it actually brought many sons to glory. So behold the man, behold him upon the cross. My sin is actually on his shoulders. And ashamed, I hear my own voice calling out among the scoffers. I'm making fun of him. And the reality that I know is that it was my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath, though, Even in that moment, his dying breath brought me life. And therefore, I know that it is finished. And then he says, and so in light of all of that, I'm not going to boast in anything. I'm not going to boast in anything. There's no gifts that I have, no power that I have. There's no wisdom that I could muster up. But this is what I will boast in. He says, I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. Because why in the world should I gain from his reward I can't give you an answer for that. There's no answer that I'm going to give you for why I should gain from what he's done for me. But this, this is what I know with all of my heart. His wounds, his wounds have paid my ransom. That's what I boast in. That is what I know. That is the Father's love for me and for all of us, church. Let us pray and thank him for this. Beg him, help us, Lord, to rejoice in him. Pray, Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you. Lord, in my best days, I need you. Lord, in what I would consider a great day, Lord, I'm often distracted by the things that I have accomplished. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for my desire to boast in my flesh. God, I don't want to do that. God, because it's not even that good. 
And Lord, the gospel is true. The gospel is real. And therefore, the joy that I can have in you is true. It is lasting. God, help me to see that. I can't see that on my own. God, I need your spirit to show me. I need your spirit to help me glory in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you for making me your own. Lord, I pray that all of us would rejoice in you, understanding the goodness and the grace and the mercy and love that you show us every single moment. God, thank you.
Yeah. 
altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Oh, come to the altar The Father's arms are open wide Forgiveness was bought with The precious blood of Jesus Christ Are you lacking joy? joy missing could it be could it be because you've been experiencing your own demands and expectations to try to please the father when jesus is behind you saying just come to me my yoke is easy and my burden is light when i said it was finished upon the cross it was actually finished you come to me seeing my kindness my my easy yoke and I'll put it upon your shoulders and you will once and for all experience what it means to come to my word and have Bible study and devotion because you're rejoicing not because you think you have to you'll come and be amongst your people because you love them and you're rejoicing because of what I've done for you and you can't help but to flow from your heart with actions that are excited about who I am and not about what you need to do. We all need to be reminded of this this morning. Not a burden for God or for Charles or any one of your pastors to remind us all of this. It's safe and good for us all to remember we are loved more than we ever dared believe. And nothing can separate us from the love of Christ because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that thought, that meditation, that reflection in every moment of life will lead us to fruit and actions that will flow from gratitude and not from demand. That's the difference. You come talk to someone if you need to, church. But we hope you go out this week resting in the grace of God alone. You are loved. God bless.